So you can turn to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 10. That's where we're going to be this evening. Um, we've been kind of working our way through uh, the Corinthian letter. Paul is writing to a vibrant community, also a fairly interesting community, uh, a church in Corinth. And uh, his letter is not only answering some of their questions, but also he's going to be challenging them on a whole bunch of things as well. Let's pray. Father, we want to hear your voice in Scripture confirming what your Holy Spirit has already been saying to us this evening. Would you come in power and bring conviction, even repentance, and a new beginning for those of us that are desperately wanting change in our lives? We pray for that now. and We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so um, we're coming into chapter 10, but uh, just want to just uh, quickly just say a couple of things about the last few verses of chapter 9. You know, if you've been on this journey, and I think Dave uh, preached on this last week. I don't know if he did it in here in the evening. Did, it, did he? I don't know. Anyway, so um, uh, towards the end of chapter 9, um, the Apostle Paul is really wanting the church to look forward and to look ahead to the prize of the goal. Um, the scripture, he starts, he says, you know, in verse 24, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize, run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They get it to get a crown that will not last. And so here is the Apostle Paul speaking to, his, to, to the Corinthian church and he wants to encourage them. And he says, guys, there is a crown and a prize and a goal that I want you to look forward to. Okay, and what, he, what happens just like in any decent athlete would do, you know, they want, you know, the Olympic gold and they may visualize that. And what they do is they take that goal and that prize and they bring it into the present, don't they? To help them make decisions um, in the present. And, and so the goal, the future goal shapes the decisions that they make in the present. And for Paul, what Paul's prize was is this. He wanted to come, if you like, at the end of his life, screeching into heaven to find Jesus saying, Paul, you are a good and faithful servant. And not only that, his prize is that he would bring as many with him as possible. That's where he was going. That was he was looking for. That was his goal and his prize. To be a man of ministry, uh, an apostle, where, the, where, where his master Jesus would say, good and faithful servant. And you have brought all these people with you into the kingdom of God. And Paul, that's, what, that's the visual that we get. And he's using this visual to say to the church, church, we know. If you want to be a contender, then you have to exercise self-control. Every athlete goes into strict training. That's what it talks about. And the reality is this, that the Corinthian church was not exercising uh, self-control. And so they were right on the sort of cusp, if you like. And the language that Paul uses 
is that they're on the cusp of being disqualified. Why, why, why does he say that? Because what he sees is this. He sees that there is a growing gap between what the Corinthian church believed and how they were living, how they behaved. There was this growing back, uh, gap between belief and behavior. And Paul is seeing this and he's going, church, something has to change. Your behavior isn't matching up to what you say you believe. And as a result of that, it's like, you know, you're in genuine danger of torpedoing your own witness in your community. That is an unbelievably sobering thought, isn't it? The, the way that they were behaving was actually torpedoing their own witness. People were beginning to ignore the church and saying, yeah, but you say that, but you live this way. And Paul, the Apostle Paul is going, don't live like that. Run in such a way that you get the prize. So the question I ask you, all of us this evening, how are you running? How are we living? Are we living in a way? Are we living looking forward to that day? And is that day shaping how we live and make our decisions today? So Paul kicks off or, or finishes chapter 9 by saying, come on, church, we need to be in the best spiritual condition of our lives to be effective for the kingdom of God. And this is what it says in, uh, in Timothy 2. Uh, 20. It says, in a, in a, sorry, I'll put my glasses on. I don't really need them. I just, I was told that I look distinguished and <laughs> harsh. In a wealthy home, some utensils are made of gold and silver. Some are made of wood and clay. The expensive utensils are used for special occasions and the cheap ones for everyday use. If you keep yourself pure, you will be a special vessel or utensil for honorable use. And this is what he says. Your life will be clean and you will be ready for the master to use you for every good work. I don't know about you, but the Apostle Paul He's saying to the Corinthians and through time saying to you and me, church, let's be ready. Let's be in a condition that the master can look at our lives and go, I want to use you today because you are ready to go. You're in the blocks. You're in good spiritual condition. And I've got a whole load of stuff that I want you to do. And, and so he's saying we need to be looking forward. But then as we cross over into chapter 10, he says, I want to take this point and I want to ram it home, if you like, not just by looking forward to a goal, but I want us to learn from history. I want you to now learn how serious I am about this gap in your life. Because if you continue to live like this, you're going to get disqualified. And so as we come to chapter 10, as we cross into chapter 10, he wants to encourage us to be effective, but he does it by saying, let's learn from history. So let's read chapter 10. He says, for I do, verse 1, For I do not want you to be ignorant 
of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that had accompanied them. And that rock was Christ. Never, nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. And their bodies were scattered over the desert. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on the evil things they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it, was, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan, pagan revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. Ooh, that's quite sobering, isn't it? We should, um, we should not test the Lord as some of them did, and they were killed by snakes and do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the age has come so if you think you're standing firm be careful that you don't fall no temptation has seized you except what is common to man and God is faithful he will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear but when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Here, Paul, he's had the church looking forward and now he's wanting to look backwards and look backwards to a generation that God had done a remarkable thing in their lives and the reality is they missed it. I, I don't know about you, but I have a couple of sisters and I love them to bits, but one April's Fool's Day, they did a terrible and wicked thing that they will be judged for, no doubt, at the end of days. Fast asleep, I am in my bed. I was about 16, 17 years old. Fast on, you know, I mean, you know, like when you're really asleep. And, it, and I could hear this distant, I'm thinking, and as you sort of come to, I'm hearing an alarm. And it's one of those really irritating alarms. And I'm thinking, where the heck is that alarm? It is quarter past four in the morning. What is going on? And anyway, I, this alarm forces me to get out of bed. And I go looking for this alarm. I find it buried in a rucksack in my wardrobe. I think, what is this? What's that about? I turn it off. Quarter past four. I just think, yeah, whatever. Get back into sleep. Out for the count. I hear again. Sounds like a chicken or something, doesn't it? You know, this, this, uh, I'm thinking, oh, what's going on? It's only 20 to 5 in the morning. What is, I'm looking for another alarm. This went on every half an hour till 8 o'clock in the morning. My sisters had planted, they must be like, ha, 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 you know, how girls are, yeah? sisters are, they're like, yes, you know, we can't overpower him, but we can wake him up, you know, it's like, thank you, I love you, you know, anyway, alarms were all the way through, I mean, by eight o'clock, I was like dead on my feet, you know, alarms, alarms are designed 
to wake us. And here Paul wants to wake up his church because they are seriously in jeopardy. They're believing one thing, but they're behaving in another way. And so he says, let's look back at a generation. He says in verse 1, I don't want you to be ignorant of what happened. You need to know. <laughs> Why? So you do not repeat their mistakes. These things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil in verse 6. Verse 11, these things happened to them as examples and they were written down as warnings, as alarms as early warning systems for you and for me. It's like Paul, you know, it's like one of those old, maybe black and white, silent films where the car is, you know, it's sort of lost its brakes or, or, or the person's driving it and, and they're just missing the signs that say the road is closed, that the bridge is out and the car, you know, is careering towards the cliff. And people are at the side of the roads going, stop, you know. That's what Paul's doing here. He's saying, guys, we must look over our shoulder and see a generation that we're going to talk about in a minute that God had done all this stuff for had brought them into an incredible place of freedom. And then they misused that freedom. And so let's just look and remind ourselves of this story in history. Exodus story. It's the story of Moses. And you can read the, you know, throughout the whole of, of the, the Exodus story. And there, I think there are three stories in the Exodus story. There's a story of an individual. There's a story about a man who at times was quite weak and wobbly and fearful. But he obeyed God even in those fearful moments and God used him to go and to see a whole nation, 700,000 men brought out of slavery. So it is a story about a man who God uses in real weakness, that man called Moses. It's also a story of God, isn't it? It's a story of how God breaks in. It's a story of kind of showing God's character, his mercy. He sees his people in slavery and pain and is moved to do something about it. It's a story of a God that will not stay just kind of in heaven in the distant place, but wants to come close and actually set us free from some things. It's a story of a God who moves in incredible power and with miracles. That's why we sometimes, you know, those of us that know this story, we love it, don't we? Even Hollywood loves it, even though they did, I don't think, a great job on it. You know, let's be honest. I mean, the whole thing, we'll leave the whole thing about God being a little kid out. If you've seen the film, it's a bit odd. But, you know, <laughs> that's my commentary on the film, by the way. You know, um, but, but, you know, we see a God who says, enough, and I am going to intervene now with power. And what do we see? We see plagues. And actually we see the angel of death come and do some stuff. And it's, it's quite, you know, it's scary actually. And then we see them at the Red Sea where, oh my goodness, the armies of the Egyptians are coming down on the nation. And what does God do? He opens the sea up. Wow, what a God of power. I don't know where you're at today. 
But it's the same God that we serve and love who can make a way in our lives when it looks impossible. That's our God. So the Moses story, the Exodus story is not just about an individual leader, but it's actually a story about the power and the character of the God that we serve now and today who loves us and loves you and me and wants to do stuff in our lives. But it's actually a story of a whole generation of people. It's about a story of a generation who receives its freedom. You know, they were in slavery for 430 years. That is a long time. That's generation after generation after generation in subjugation. You know, in slavery, in bondage. That is not a a good life. It's not life. It's not what God wanted for, for his people. 430 years. They're a generation that then live through that incredible moment of being brought out. I don't know about you guys, but I have hopes and dreams. And I want to see them realized, don't you? You know, I had a dream that one day I would get married. It was a distant dream. Because I used to look in the mirror and go, oh my goodness, will anybody love this face? No. <laughs> but listen, but, the, but then suddenly the reality of it happened. And I was like living, the, living it out. Listen, these people, they knew that God had promised them freedom from Egypt. It was in their bones. It had been written down. They knew Abraham's promise that one day this would happen. This is the generation that it happens to. They're the ones that actually witness it and live it and suddenly find themselves walking out of Egypt through the Red Sea on dry ground to Mount Sinai and looking back and going, wow, it's happening in my generation now. And yet, even though they witnessed the power, and even though they were part of it, says there they missed it and many of them died in the desert God had brought them out from slavery but they behaved in a way and they cheapened the freedom that God had given them and as a result this is so sobering they themselves did not live in the full promise of God and it passed over them to their children listen I believe that God is always looking for a generation that's ready God's plan for that generation was that they would not die in the desert and miss it. God's plan for that generation was to walk out of Egypt, arrive at Mount Sinai, receive this new way of living to be a blessing to the nations, and then walk across the Jordan into all of the promises. But it didn't happen. And that's why Paul is using this as an example. 
to the Corinthian church because he's saying, guys, God has given you amazing freedom. He has set you free. I don't want you to miss it, but you are right on the cusp of missing out on God's promises. That is quite a sobering challenge for you and me to assess how we're living. And are we cheapening the grace and the forgiveness of God in our lives? Let's just have a quick look at what happened to that generation. In verse 7 um, of chapter 10, Paul refers to Exodus 32. Moses has led them out of Egypt. He's led them through the sea. They've crossed over, and now they're on Mount Sinai. And this is where it all started for Moses. You know, that's where it all began for Moses, at the burning bush on this mountain. And, and, and God promised Moses, uh, uh, he said to him, you're going to go now and you are go- God, I'm going to use you to set an entire nation free and you're going to bring them all out to this mountain. That was the goal that Moses was, had fixed his eyes upon and now he's fulfilled it and he's come to Mount Sinai and he's brought an entire nation with him. Can't you see a parallel between him and Paul? I can. Because that's what Paul wants to do when he gets to glory, doesn't he? He wants to make sure he's bringing as many people with him as possible. And so here is Moses. He's now standing at Mount Sinai. And what does he do? It says he goes now up to worship God and to give thanks. To be honest with you, let's be honest. I think that would be a great moment for Moses. God, you've fulfilled everything that you said you would do, and here I am now. And look, Lord, they've come. Your people are here. They're no longer slaves. Lord, this is an amazing moment to rejoice and to give thanks. And so he goes up a mountain to have quality time of thanks with God. While he's gone, in 40 days, they forget while he's gone during that 40 days that generation lose sight of what's important they lose sight of what God has done for them and who God is Exodus 32 says when the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain they gathered round Aaron and said come make us gods who will go before us As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, hey, we don't know what's happened to him. So they take the plunder, the gifts that the Egyptians had given them, all these earrings and gold and all that kind of stuff. The Egyptians gave them to the Israelites as they were leaving. God gave them presents and gifts to help them start a new life. The Israelites took that, those earrings and that gold and those gifts and they melted them down and they made a golden calf. They took the very freedom that God had given them and the gifts that God had given them and they made a God in, in their own image, in a sense, they designed this God for themselves because they knew this calf, in a sense, would give them permission to live their lives any way they wanted that is 
unbelievable. Did they get knocked on the head? How do they forget in 40 days the Red Sea, the plagues, the power of God, the faithfulness of God? But they did. And when I read these stories, I don't know about you guys, but I put myself in the stories. Do you? I put myself in the story and I often think like this. If I had been there, I wouldn't have got involved in that. How many of us would do that? Do you know what? If Chris had been there, he's like holy and he's got a great beard. He'd be like, what are you doing, Aaron? No way should we be doing that. You see, the reality is only two men out of 700,000 made it to the promised land. The reality of these is this. We are all capable of forgetting the goodness of God. We are all capable of taking our eyes off him and what he's done and who he is. And when we do that, we forget who we are and what we're we forget that we are his children that God has set us free for a purpose and that purpose is to be a transforming nation to be a people that will be a blessing to the nations and that when they look at us they something different about that people God is with them and so this, this generation that was given their freedom, they threw it away because they took their eye of what God had done in, in the past, in the very recent past, who he was and who he is as a loving father, full of mercy, who has a plan for you and for me. And they replaced him with a cow. Gutting. And the crazy thing is this. It didn't just happen once. You don't get disqualified because of one mistake. What you see, though, is a catalog of mistakes, of turning away of disobedience, of doing their own thing and wanting their own way. And ultimately, that generation ran out of time. They tried to hold on to Egypt but also wanted all the promises. And when you try and hold on to one thing and pursue another, you end up just standing still. And that's what happened. This generation ended up staying in the desert and then they died in the desert. Listen, Paul is saying to the Corinthian church, guys, let's learn from history. There is a gap in your life. Please, let's not end up like that generation that was given everything, but wanted to hold on to that past, somehow wanted to bring some of Egypt with them, when God was saying to them, let it go, because I've got something way better for you. And so that's why he says, we must learn from history. Let's not be like them. Let's not die in the desert.
let's cross over. You know, for some of us today, you must be thinking, oh, but that's okay, James. That's all about the Old Testament. God would never kind of, you know, bring discipline like that to our lives. Do you know what? Look what he says to the church in Ephesus out of Revelations. He says this to the church in Ephesus. He says, my friends, you have lost sight of your first love. You've replaced him by doing stuff. This is my translation. You've lost sight. That generation in the desert, they lost sight of who? Their first love. And what does Jesus say to that church in the, in the book of Revelations? He says, if you continue to do this, I'm going to come and remove your lap stand. Not quite sure what that means, but I don't think it's nice. <laughs> No likey, no lighty. It's a whole new way of looking, isn't it? God is looking at the church. He's like, I don't really like anymore what I'm seeing. And I'm going to pull the light out. I don't want that to happen. Paul certainly doesn't want that to happen to the Corinthian church. And I know for us here, God, please don't put the lights out on us. He says to the church in Pergamum, he calls them to repent because some folks are uh, acting with sexual immorality, but they're also um, adhering to some false teaching. And Jesus says to that church, you need to stop this, otherwise I will come to you and fight against you with the sword of my mouth. Again, I'm not quite sure what that means, but I don't think it would be a totally enjoyable experience. And then to Laodicea, this is what he says. He says, church, you're neither hot nor cold. You've gone passive. Church, you've become a passive church. You've become a nominal people. You've got this nominal subscription to me, but you don't look like me. And what does he say to them? This is, I'm going to spit you out. Oh God, please, please don't. I don't want to water down the warning and the alarm clock of when Paul says we must learn from history. There is a gap, church, in the behavior and the belief. Let's, let's look back and learn from history. Learn from the generation that ended up dying in the desert because that is not what God wants for you and for me. He wants us to enter into all that he has for us. As I was reflecting on this, I was thinking about the dreams and even some of the prophetic words that God, I believe, has had for our nation, Scotland. You know, we've sung even tonight about revival. God's looking for a generation that will keep his eyes focused and fixed and will not forget the freedom and the liberty that Christ bought on the cross for you and for me. He's looking for a generation that is, in a sense, spiritually fit and in the block and is a vessel ready to be used. So he can just take us as a church and as individuals and use us to bring hundreds, maybe thousands, to faith in Christ. And that we, like Paul, can go skidding into heaven with a whole nation with us. 
I don't want to die in the desert. Paul says to the Corinthian church, I don't think God's heart is that you should die in the desert. God's heart was always that you walked into the promised land. So the question is, what on earth do we do? Now for some of us today, it's surgery time. It is. It's time to let go. Let go of that stuff that's inhibiting us that's weighing us down the Bible just calls it sin he says let it go bring it to him let him free you so that you can cross over fully into something new and I just felt this evening as we were praying in the back before this service started for some of you who are brand new students to Aberdeen you have an opportunity to plant a flag and say do you know if I'm really honest I've had a foot in both camps at home. But as I come to uni, I want to leave some things properly behind. And I want to come to uni and I want to put both feet in with Jesus and say, Jesus, I want to follow you. I want to walk in the freedom that you've given me and I want you to use me. And I believe this evening for some folks, he wants to do something extraordinary in your life. He wants to fill you with the Holy Spirit and he wants to cement that decision in your heart this evening. So why don't we stand? No more desert. Let's cross over into everything that God has for you.